0: Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this grey, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music. Which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean... I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now, so why should your present-day ears be punished because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button? Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for, just slightly better. Thanks for listening.
1: It's the Pages and Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will it. it's the Pages and Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen.
0: Hello and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where two book nerds talk about movies that are based on books as well as the original source material. Today Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's right. The short story slash novella book, and then the movie that was made a few years later. Before we do that, we want to remind you to check us out on Facebook and Twitter, as well as visit our website, which is pagesandpopcornpodcast.com. You can hear us on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and... Google! Plus, Google! Yes! And lastly, we want to remind you that we have a Patreon. So if you would like to support us in our efforts and help us pay for the rental fees of watching these movies, that would be great. Or for a coffee. Or for the coffee. There's always coffee. Yes. Um, Our Patreon has two levels, $1 level and a $5 level. So consider this your personal invitation to support us at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash pagesandpopcornpodcast. All of those links can be found at our Facebook and on our Twitter and at our website so, feel free to check us out in any social media way that works for you.
1: So, Kayla, since this is your choice...
0: Yes, I had never read the book nor seen the movie, but I'd heard a lot about it, and I'd heard the song, because I am a child of the 90s, and it went, I said, what about Breakfast at Tiffany's? I she hate that said, song. She said, I think I remember the film line, as I recall, I think both kind of liked it. And I thought, huh, I wonder if Jennifer and I will both kind of like it. So, Maybe we should read it. She doesn't like the song, but I don't know if that bodes well or bad for the... Well, it's not the movie or the book. That's true. It is just the song.
1: (laughs) So I guess I'm kind of the same way. I never read the book. I never saw the movie, but I heard a lot about the movie growing up, and everybody loved Audrey Hepburn, and she was this iconic, chic, very skinny, modern girl of her time. So yeah, it was kind of interesting just because this has been a a
0: cultural sort of, I guess, um, fossil yeah, I, I think that it was, well, okay, I knew that there was a movie, and I knew it was based on a book, and I'd of course heard of Truman Capote, although I think initially I heard of him because in connection with Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird, so that's a whole other thing. I remember seeing a movie poster for a movie, and it had a blonde girl in, like, some kind of cute PJs and somebody was talking about breakfast at Tiffany's. Now I'm pretty sure that movie poster was actually pajama party, but because somebody was talking about breakfast at Tiffany's and there was this picture of this girl in her PJs, I was like, Oh, that must be this movie. Like, Maybe there's a sleepover, and then girls have breakfast together, and somebody's named Tiffany, and how adorable, and someday, maybe I want to watch that. And then I got old and jaded, and I was like, I don't want to watch a movie about dippy girls having a slumber party and then eating breakfast together. And now you would watch it. I would totally watch a movie now <laughs> about girls having a sleepover. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, that's kind of how I came to this. I was very tabula rasa, so to speak, when it, when it comes to both the book and the movie. So I get to recap both, and I'm going to recap the book, and then I'm going to recap the movie. So here we go. The book, Breakfast at Tiffany's, published in 1958. Recap. Our narrator is our framing device. He is a writer. He's back in the old neighborhood due to a call from Joe, the bartender. Joe tells of the former neighborhood man photographer, Mr. Yunioshi, who came by with photos from Africa. Seems that while visiting a remote village, he found wood carvings that look just like Holly, a girl that they all used to know. When Mr. Yunaoshi asked about who the carvings were of, the villager told him that a while back, a white lady and two white dude companions had showed up. The guys were sick, and the gal had made friends with a local, special friends. Although Joe does not believe this, because racism. The two, Joe and narrator, reminisce. Could this be Holly? Could it be? Narrator points out that Joe was probably in love with Holly, and Joe maintains that he loved her, but only in his own weird little way. Our narrator starts his flashback, and this is the total rest of the story. Goodbye, framing device. We knew you well. Back in the day, this narrator lived in a brownstone, and one of the apartments was rented by Holly Golightly, who had affixed a note of traveling on her dorm nameplate. Enter Holly, quintessential manic pixie dream girl with flapper-like tendencies. She is self-centered and childish and apparently irresistible. She keeps losing her key, and poor Mr. Yunyoshi, who lives upstairs, has to let her in at all hours, although she barters for this favor by agreeing to pose for him in his photography. She's a flirt and a tease. The first time we see her, she's letting a man walk her home but not letting him in and then giving him some crap about not giving her enough money for the powder room. More on the powder room later. Now Holly is not ringing the narrator's bell at all hours. And the narrator goes through her trash. And a picture of a gal about town party girl emerges. Narrator and Holly finally connect when she needs his help. Because a horrid man who's come home with her has bitten her. Yes, bitten her. And Holly needs to hide out in narrator's apartment wearing nothing but a robe. And he realizes that her dark glasses are prescription. Also, she names him Fred after her much beloved brother. Some background is given on her, but it's very performative secret telling, and she contradicts herself and is purposely vague. He reads her one of his short stories about two women sharing a house, and she's quick to point out the queer theme. She uses the word dyke, and narrator Fred is shocked and appalled. The story bores her because she doesn't understand lesbians, but she wants one as a housemate because she wants someone who will do all of her chores. She had one once in Hollywood, and she rambles about how maybe everyone is part dyke, and how it's titillating for men, and how women get married to earn themselves a name, and ramble, ramble, ramble. Holly likes to ramble. Oh no, it's morning already. And it's Thursday! She has a weekly date on Thursday, you know, with a gangster named Salvador Tomatoes. Tomato Sally. She gets paid to go talk to him. Of course she earns her money by telling his lawyer all the things that they talk about. So yeah, she is legitimately working for gangsters doing gangster type shit. And she plays the bimbo. Hee <laughs> hee. Side note, because it's on theme. Holly talks about seeing the kids on the train going to visit their fathers in jail. She talks about how they're all dressed up and happy and the whole thing is like a festive party during visiting time. But on the way home, they're all quiet and sad. This theme of, is all about expectation versus reality, the artifice versus the reality, and it recurs so much, but this is definitely a bonk bonk moment regarding it. Narrator Fred is infatuated with Holly. She invites him over for a drink. Turns out it's a party. All men, who look like they all thought it was going to be just them. We meet OJ from California, who was Holly's agent, and he sank lots of money into refining her and fixing her up, getting rid of her accent. She could have been a star, baby, but she bailed on it. We meet her cat, unnamed because Holly says he doesn't belong to her and she doesn't belong to him. They're just two adventuring spirits drawn together. Isn't that just wild? Isn't that just so amazing how carefree and how not tied down she is? We also meet Rusty, a babyish playboy millionaire who's gay, you think, and who also likes to get bossed around by Holly. He's also apparently abused as a child, and this is very quickly glossed over. And it's apparently also common knowledge. Enter Mag, a large, not terribly pretty woman who is also a model and who steals a bit of Holly's attention until Holly pulls a total bitch move and says, oh, doesn't she look healthy? She looks... So healthy. She looks so healthy and suddenly Madge is not nearly as exciting to the men at the party. Important occurrence at the party also, Holly talks about the mean red, which narrator Fred calls angst. Holly says they can only be cured by visiting Tiffany's, the jewelry store, because it's a safe place with nice men and clean atmosphere. She seems to be looking for somewhere to belong, somewhere to feel safe. The party ends when Holly and the men bail and Mag passes out. Now Mag has moved in with Holly, and the ladies talk about husbands and the men who bite and the Americans versus non-Americans. Conveniently, they have this conversation on the fire escape so narrator Stucker Boy can eavesdrop. Mag is engaged to Jose, a Brazilian politician. She's conflicted about moving to Brazil, and Holly both slut-shames and prude-shames her in the same conversation, and then makes the cryptic, better me than you, statement narrator Fred gets a story published, but won't be paid for it. Apparently the old, we are paying you an exposure, not money, is as relevant for writers in the 40s and 50s as it is today. Side note, I feel your pain, narrator Fred. Holly calls BS on him not being paid. It's the first time that I like her. Whatever. She quickly adapts because she's good at that and is now happy for him for getting published. Their friendship is kicked up a notch as they celebrate and discuss all sorts of things, including zoos. Of course, Holly hates them. And this all leads to a delightful adventure where they get to go get peanut butter for her brother Fred. And then they steal from a store. How thrilling and marvelous. Gag. Period of time of frolicking around and narrator friend watching the foursome, which is Rusty, Holly, Mag, and Jose from afar. He even follows Holly into a library at one point and spies on her as she reads. She's studying up on Brazil, of course. Christmas. Huge tree decorated with balloons because everything has to be bigger and more exciting than real and a gift of a birdcage from Holly to narrator Fred. And now... The falling out. Holly and OJ think narrator Fred is on the wrong track with his writing. Negroes and children? Apparently those are not an important topic. His story doesn't mean anything, says Holly. Narrator Fred is offended and asks for an example of something that means something. She gives Wuthering Heights, and he's like, oh, well, yeah, that's a classic. But it turns out that she's talking about the movie, not the book. And you know what sort of person likes movies more than books. <clears throat> Anyway, they argue. She's offended narrator writer Fred. He doesn't let the birdcage get thrown away, but almost, and they avoid each other. Another tenant tries to get Holly evicted, and it circulates a petition. Narrator, full of regret, Fred doesn't sign on this, but he does sort of agree. Enter an older man, obviously from the country. He seems to be a stalker. Narrator Fred talks to him, and no, it's not a stalker. It's not Holly's father. It's Holly's husband. Record screech. Yes, see, Holly was married happily, according to her horse-doctor husband named Doc, in Texas, and mother to his children, his first wife had died. She could have stayed there in relative luxury, but knew no, she had read too many magazines, according to Doc, and had just bailed on them at one point. She left her beloved brother Fred behind and had just disappeared. Her real name is Lula Mae. Which I love. Okay, so back to the marriage. She was apparently 14 and destitute and starving when Doc and his family found her and took her in. Yeah, 14 and married. Yikes and gross and no. There is a reunion between Lula Mae and Doc that narrator Busybody Fred helps facilitate. Then they go off to makeups, have makeup sex... And then Holly puts Doc on a bus, kisses him goodbye, and convinces him to just leave her in New York. Apparently, you can't cage a wild thing, and if you love a wild thing, you won't even try to cage it. Holly, remember, is a wild thing, don't you know? She's so wild. Her best line does come at this point. Quote, It's better to look at the sky than to live there. Such an empty place, so vague, just a country where the thunder goes and things disappear. Holly and narrator back in her good graces have made up, but it's still a shock when he reads in the paper that Rusty has been married, he thinks to Holly, but no to Mag. He finds Holly throwing an epic fit, breaking everything in her apartment over love? No. She's fine with the switch of partners, but her brother Fred has died and she is distraught. Jose moves in, and he and Holly are a couple now. She's depressed, but also suddenly very housewife, into and cooking and nesting. Of course, because she's pregnant with Jose's baby, and she's still racist, but now it's apparently okay, or something. So she's learning Portuguese and planning on moving to Brazil with Jose and getting married. She's decided to love Jose, so that's that. Climax! In two parts. First, Holly and the narrator no longer Fred go horseback riding and no longer called Fred's horse, gets scared by a gang of kids and runs off, and no longer Fred is in danger, but Holly and a mounted policeman manage to save his life all very exciting. Recovering in the bathtub later, the police enter no longer Fred's apartment and arrest Holly. The woman cop tries to touch her and Holly snaps at her and calls her a dyke and gets a slap for her efforts. Then off she goes, leaving narrator naked Fred, not Fred, behind. She's arrested. For what? Well, someone got wise to her visits to Tomato Sally in prison and her passing on info. And he is a big-time drug gangster! So arrested she is, and she loses the baby. Mag and Rusty are no help. They quickly distance themselves from her. Jose leaves her as well. OJ from California sends a lawyer, but Holly Bean Holly has decided to skip town and run away. Pussy Whipped Narrator helps her because reasons. He's whipped, I guess. They get her stuff from the apartment, including No Name the Cat. Holly leaves No Name the Cat in Spanish Harlem. She's a bitch to the cat to get it to run away. And then two blocks later has a change of heart, but it's too late. The cat has disappeared. So off Holly goes, on to her next adventure. One cryptic postcard is all Narrator Sad Sack gets. And that's pretty much the end. Oh, Postscript. He found the cat that had been adopted and seems content to finally belong to someone. Narrator never got over it, hopes that somewhere out there, Holly also has found a place to belong. The end. That was the book. The book, which was written in 1958, but seems to be taking place during the war. Not seems to, they were very clear about that. It was taking place during the Second World War. And the movie had set more in the 60s. Yes, which we're now going to talk about. The movie, which was made in 1961. Here's my, like, Two, three sentence recap, and then I'll do my actual recap. A party girl socialite named Holly who can't be tied down falls for the golden-haired novelist who moves into her building. They run around New York being young and carefree, then they make out in the rain. She has a cat named Cat. She looks amazing. She's really thin. The end. <laughs> Which <laughs> pretty much. is pretty much what happens, but let's do the recap. We start off with Audrey Hepburn in a black dress, pearls, sunglasses, getting out of a car and enjoying a pastry and coffee in front of Tiffany's. She is legit having breakfast at Tiffany's as the sun is rising. Anyway, she's lovely and sad and she eats her snack and sips her coffee and looks at the windows and then she meanders away. She gets home and is accosted by a dude in a suit who's been sleeping outside in the car. In order to get into the building, she buzzes Mr. Yunyoshi, a Japanese man played by the decidedly not Japanese actor Mickey Rooney. More on that later but oh my god. Muttering about how much he dislikes her, he names her Miss Golightly and lets her in. Suit guy. Tries to guilt her into letting him into her apartment, saying how he paid for dinner and drinks, etc., but she is coy and sends him on his way. He bangs on the door in a fit of anger. He keeps telling her as he's banging on the door, You like me, I pay, doesn't that give me some rights? You like me, you like me ugh. Oh, and Miss Golightly promises to let Mr. Yunyashi take photos of her in a flirty sort of way. Then whatever, a cab pulls up outside, and out comes studly man with luggage. In a karma twist, he rings Golightly's bell until she, passed out and sleeping it off, wakes up and lets him in. She has a cat and earplugs and somehow puts on a man's shirt that buttons up in the back in the most awkward way imaginable. She lets him into the building. He rewards her by asking if he can use her phone. In her apartment, we get the wild child vibe. Her phone is in a suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> and the cat jumps on the Studley man. Character development. The cat has no name. She is a manic pixie dream girl. Doesn't want to belong to anyone or anything. And she name drops Tiffany's. She's just crazy about it. Tells him about the mean reds. The fear of when you don't know what it is that you're afraid of. Curious to go to Tiffany's. He goes to make his call. But upon hearing that it is Thursday, she flies into a freakout. Suddenly, she isn't hungover anymore, but a flurry of activity. Getting dressed. Explaining that she's going to Sing Sing. She's going to visit the head of the mafia, Sally Tomato. She gets paid to visit him. Studley man seems of his element, but intrigued. Oh, and she names herself as Holly. She admits to using men for tips and getting cash. It's euphemism for call girl, and it's not even all that well-coded. Off she goes, whistling for a cab, the same cab that a much more respectable lady has arrived in. This lady named Sudley Man as Paul. Tiny flash of jealousy on Holly's face as the ladies are introduced. Mrs. Failstrom, but we will call her Mrs. money's Skirt, gets out of the cab. Paul introduces her as his decorator. Emphasis on the pause. Then Holly is off to Grand Central and Paul and Mrs. Money Skirt head upstairs. Mr. Yunyashi is awakened again by loud music and Holly is climbing out of her bathroom window to escape a drunk man in her apartment. She ends up outside of Paul's window and sees Mrs. Money Skirt leaving a worn out, naked in the bed, Paul! She leaves cash on the table. After she's gone, Holly wakes Paul up by climbing into his room. They chit-chat. She names him Fred after her beloved brother. She outs Paul as a gigolo, but says she understands completely. They get to know each other. She is top banana in the shop department and he is a writer. Now he's working on a novel. She calls his bluff by pointing out that his typewriter has no ribbon. Some more back On Holly. She likes to tell stories. She doesn't want to answer questions. They have a platonic cuddle that turns into a nap cut short by him trying to be more intimate and soothe her after a bad dream. She gets upset and bails. Next day, Paul gets a call from Mrs. Money Skirt who must call off their date because husband has returned from out of town. Paul is dismissive. Holly has forgiven him quickly and invites him over for a party. It's party time! There are insipid blondes, lots of people, a parrot in a cage which seems oddly placed, and O.J., who calls Paul Fred Baby, and wants to know if Holly is a phony or not. O.J. gives some background on Holly about how he fixed her up after finding her in Hollywood, and how she bailed on the big screen test. Party continues. So many people! It is chaos! Holly is holding court! Her cigarette lights a lady's hat on fire, and is put out by somebody dumping a drink on her head, and this has got to be the only drink in the room that is not booze, because the woman's head does not explode in flames. Although, I kind of want to too. Paul is amused by the drunken revelry. Enter Mag, an Amazon model. Holly calls her a bore. who arrives with Jose, tall, dark, and handsome from Brazil, and Rusty Trowler, who Holly knows by sight as the ninth richest man in America under 50. Upstairs, Mr. Yunyashi is getting pissed by the music. The party is in full swing, complete with my favorite moment, a drunk lady laughing hysterically at herself in a mirror. Girl, I see you. Debauchery is happening all over the place, and there's nice shots of butts and people climbing on each other, and oh, the lady in the mirror is now looking at herself and sobbing. Girl, I see you double. I have been you. Paul answers the phone in the suitcase. Mr. Yunyashi is going to call the cops. Also, Paul puts a cigarette out Under a rug. Okay, whatever. Jose is very nervous about the police and Mag is super drunk and belligerent and she falls face... First, after Holly helpfully yells timber, they leave her on the floor and the party keeps going. The police have arrived, so Paul sneaks Jose out the bathroom window and Holly and Rusty bail. Scene shift to Sing Sing, where we meet Sally Tomato. Holly has brought Paul with her. No idea why this scene is even here. He sort of shames her for her life, and the weather report to take back to the lawyer is so obviously code. How can she not even know? Like there's snow in New Orleans. She is like purposely oblivious. Paul has been inspired by Holly and is writing about her. I'm totally sure he got permission, right? Holly shows us her softer side by singing on the fire escape with a guitar. Mrs. Money Skirt arrives and is freaked out because there's a dude watching the apartment. Paul decides to find out who he is and what he wants. The two men share jacks and a conversation in the park. It isn't Mrs. Bunny Skirt's husband's flunky, it's Jed Clampett. No, sorry, it's Holly's husband. Dun, dun, dun. Holly is actually Lula Mae. She was 14. She was starving. She was stealing from Doc, a widower with kids. He married her and has come to collect her as her brother Fred is getting out of the army in four months. Paul is heartsick and jealous and moody, but he takes Doc Jed back to the apartment and stages the reunion. After a night of makeup time, Holly convinces Paul to come with her and Doc Jed to the bus station where she tearfully explains that she is a wild thing. You just can't cage a wild thing. Doc Jed threatens to cut off Fred, but then relents, and off he goes back to Texas. Holly seems to actually feel something akin to remorse and says she needs to get super drunk, so off they go to a strip club! I'm sorry, a burlesque club! Holly seems to enjoy watching the nudie show, as does Paul. No idea why they picked this place. Holly is judgy of the dancer. Paul is loyal to Holly, calling the stripper amusing and superficial. After the bar, a very Very drunk and adorable Holly has to be carried up the stairs. Mr. Yunyashi is yelling at her, of course, and she announces that she will stop playing the field and will catch Rusty Trawler as a husband. Paul is horrified by this, but Holly won't be dissuaded and they fight. She tries to give him money to go buy more booze and calls him a whore. He returns the insult. She kicks him out of her apartment. Later? Days? I'm not sure. Paul gets a check. He has stole the story. He goes to tell Holly and sees the paper. Rusty has already gotten married. Holly doesn't really care about losing Rusty. It turns out that Rusty was broke. Holly makes a disgusting drink by adding water to a jar of brown powder. They make up and almost kiss in an intimate way, but nope. She asks about Mrs. Money Skirt, and he changes the subject. Champagne to celebrate his check. He's never had champagne before breakfast. And now there's a game. They're going to hit the town and do new things. Of course, Holly can't possibly think of anything she has. Hasn't done. Insert eye roll here. Apparently, she's never walked around in the morning. Whatever. So they go to Tiffany's. They can't afford anything, although he at first wants to use his royalty check, but she won't let him. They settle on getting something engraved. He has a Cracker Jack ring from Doc Jed's park snack that he kept for some reason. They will get that engraved. Lovely little chat with the salesman. Then it's off to the New York library. Holly's never been inside. She gets a crash course in the card catalog, and they pull Paul's book. Holly is so manic pixie she can't possibly keep quiet. She convinces Paul to sign his book. Isn't she adorable? Isn't she? Next up, they decide to commit petty theft. The scene is cute full of Mr. X, but it's still them stealing for the hell of it. Sure, okay. Frivolous fun and oh boy, what little scamps they are. And you know what stealing gets you in the mood for, right? Yep, after they steal masks and run away, it's home to the apartment for sex. Paw wakes up post coil and goes looking for Holly. She's not in his apartment, so he naturally climbs into her apartment, but she's not there either. He almost gets caught by Mrs. Money Skirt on the stairs but gets back to his place in time in order to open the door, invite her in, and then end thing. Apparently he has fallen in love. Mrs. Money Skirt isn't really interested. She doesn't seem to care if he loves someone else, offers him money, makes him feel cheap and objectified poor Paul. He refuses her money and leaves. The implication is that he will have to give up the apartment and all the clothes and such things. So, he doesn't live there anymore or he's in the process of not living anymore? I don't know. Holly won't answer her phone. He's overcome with grief. He's accosting women who look like Holly in the street. But he finally finds her in the library. She's studying South America because she's planning on catching herself a Jose-shaped husband. Paul tells her that he loves her. She doesn't want to hear it. She calls him Fred. He corrects her and refuses to let her go despite her asking, then telling him to. He again tries to play the part of wounded lover and she's cold and dismissive and so he gives her his royalty check that I guess he never cashed. It's like a sort of subtle dig not so subtle dig at her call girl status he paid her for sex but again with a check he probably needed whatever. Mr. Yoniashi is in the bath and has to answer the door so he drips all over Holly and Jose who are returning from some sort of festive adventure. They also see Paul on the stairs taking out the trash so I guess he hasn't moved out yet. Holly starts throwing an epic fit Jose and lists his help because Holly has gone totally crazed throwing things and even the cat and stuff is going everywhere and everything's getting destroyed. They get her calmed down and she collapses into the bed sobbing. The telegram is the tallest. Her brother Fred is dead. Paul leaves her with Jose, because she is Jose's girl now, right? Some time later. Paul has obviously moved out. It's been at least a month, and he returns to the apartment where Holly has been playing house with Jose. The apartment is all South American themed, she's learning Portuguese, she's knitting and cooking, and has invited Paul over for a goodbye dinner. Paul is writing and getting paid as a writer and seems sort of over her. She keeps telling him how happy she is, and you know someone is genuinely happy when they feel like they have to tell you how happy they are at least twice a minute, right? She's going to Rio with Jose, but he hasn't actually asked her to marry him yet. She sucks as a chef. The pot explodes, so off they go to dinner. They have a lovely time. Of course, she tells him that Jose isn't perfect, but whatever, She says she loves him. Back at the apartment, they're surprised by the cops. Mr. Yunyashi has apparently made good on his threats, or is it more sinister? It's the narcotics police. Her gangster life has caught up with her. They are manhandled away, and at the police station, Paul gives his name and his profession for some reason, and Holly talks to reporters. She maintains both her and Sally Tomato's innocence. Paul is let go, and a call to OJ in California gets Holly a lawyer, and she'll be released the next day. Paul is dispatched by OJ to go clean out her apartment Next day Paul and Kat are in a taxi waiting for Holly And Paul has a farewell letter from Jose Holly is sad but puts on a brave face with the help of makeup She wants to go to the airport and use her ticket She's off to start a new life. Not with Jose, but just a new life. Paul tells her again that he loves her, that she belongs to him. She freaks out, is cruel and cold. She's wild, remember? Love is a cage. She won't have any part of it. She kicks the cat out of the car in the rain. Paul loses his cool, calls her on her massive amount of bullshit. He tosses the engraved ring at her and then goes to look for the cat. Holly breaks down, puts the ring on her married finger and runs after him and the cat. She mouths something at him and then asks about the cat. Dramatic looking for cat in an alley in the pouring rain ensues tensions mount they stare at each other and then the cat makes noise so at last holly has found the cat and then she kisses paul as moon river plays and i guess they're going to live happily ever after the end that was a very epic recap thank you i think
1: <laughs> <laughs> well it's very detailed but then like there was so much going on in this story plot wise okay. it was very soap upright. Up, right there was, there was
0: a lot of plot Yeah, it's interesting because usually a short story or a novella when they make into a movie, they have to add a lot of stuff and they really didn't have to. They didn't have to add. They decided to add a lot more of a role for Mr. Uniyoshi for some reason. He was barely in the book. But um,
1: well, the funny thing to me is the movie gets a lot of crap for being racist, which it totally is. But the book is incredibly racist, too.
0: Right. Well, and the book was like racist for its time in that, like, you know, the way people talked, okay, like it reflected those attitudes of those people. So you can almost you can, but at the time when when the movie was made, it almost feels like they were oblivious on purpose. In, In fact, I actually have a, a quote. Let's see here. But although Uniyoshi is a self-proclaimed artist and a fashion photographer, he isn't cool. He's bumbling and pathetic for that time period. With the kind of equipment needed for a magazine ad photography, a photographer wouldn't be so awkward. Rooney's Uniyoshi is the antithesis of style. In this fairy tale, the high fashion photog has less style than a Tennessee backwoods boy. Doc Golightly. Hick. So, like, they made choices to make him more racist. Mm. Like, to be more racist than they needed to be. Like, having him walk into things and not be able to walk across the room without bumping in. And they made some some choices there in terms to make him well, it more racist. Like comic relief, more than anything, I guess. I did not find it funny, but maybe oh, that's me. No. Yeah, M- Mickey Rooney also is quoted. I have a thing around here somewhere where he is saying like he was amazed the people were so offended. I do
1: remember reading um, a movie review from the time, and his portrayal was considered a sensitive one. Oh, but Holly, like she's pretty damn racist. She is. Oh yeah, in both. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's so blatant, you know, um, when she does talk about marrying Jose. She's like, I want to have a night of his babies. And some of them might be dark, but I think I'll be okay with that.
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Although, in the book, she also was apparently sleeping with somebody in Africa, so she's progressive for her time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so just um, a couple of research notes before we do changes. The powder room, 20 cents versus $50. So we know that the powder room was a euphemistic way for men to give their quasi professional paid escorts money. $50 for a cab, which was only about $5 in those days. $50 for the powder room, where the standard tip for the restroom attendant was a fancy place was like a dollar. It made it seem like it was less sordid. It ended up at at a time when the monthly rent was about $100 or so. So that's kind of the idea of that and then another thing that i just thought was interesting to point out today you can get married at texas at 14 but you need parental you need consent. parental consent i couldn't find if that was different back then but I, but I can only imagine that if it's 14 now it was definitely 14 then and if you need parental consent now you probably didn't need parental consent in the in the 40s and the 50s yeah so, that was so gross blah, blah, blah. okay yes. we'll get to like the gross factor so changes yeah so the
1: narrator was you know gay He's not interested in her as anything but a platonic friend. Okay,
0: so one of the quotes, one of the things that I read online was Hollywood uh, Hollywood has taken a novel with a gay man in love with a straight call girl and turned it into a romantic comedy, (laughs) which I thought was pretty funny. Is Paul gay in the book? I actually have opinions and thoughts on this. So okay, go for it. Okay, I I have a feeling that we might disagree, but if we look at the story as a work of fiction and we look at the story and we only use what's in the text, then I don't think you can say that the narrator was gay. I think you can say the narrator wasn't interested in Holly in that sexual way, and I think we can guess at why, but I don't think there's anything implicitly in the text to say the narrator was gay, if we take it as a work of fiction. If we take it as a semi-autobiographical thing, it gets a little bit more murky because Truman Capote was gay. However... As somebody who writes short stories, sometimes which are autobiographical in nature, but not exactly, I have a hesitation ascribing something to a character or even a narrator in a story that's not said in the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think if you look at what's implied...
1: And you can have
0: death of the author in this. Okay, well, explain death of an author for the people who listen who don't know that phrase. Okay, so there there's kind of a competing
1: view of death of the author. Do you want me to go through, like, the longer version? Of no, it I just don't... want you to
0: sum up, because we're okay. going to use a phrase So gotta... it
1: doesn't really matter what the author intends, you have the text. Okay, so
0: if you go with that, then what's in the text, if you leave the author away, which is also called um, deconstructionist theory, we mm. only looking at the text... If you only look at the text, all we really know about the author is what the author or the narrator is what the narrator tells us about himself. And what he tells us about himself is his feelings for Holly, but he was in love with her in the same way that he loved his family's like servant and like a whole other family and like a grand aunt or something, so it's it's not a romantic sexual very... love. And okay. we have that he was he got in trouble with the law at some point, but he didn't want to talk to us about it. Like we don't have a lot about the author or the narrator in the text.
1: That's true. It's interesting because Holly does reflect on him and his thoughts about her but what we know about him is actually very little.
0: Very little. We
1: don't even know his name. The narrator in the book is unnamed. Mm-hmm. Well, like cat. Cat. she calls him Fred. Yeah, yes, because exactly. you kind of
0: need something to call right, him. Right, right. I called him narrator. Yeah, so they <laughs> yes.
1: changed his name. They gave him a name in the movie, which you kind of have to because right, you can't course. have the invisible Well, and,
0: and, and also the movie was, was different. The book was all about Holly through the Lens of this narrator, but he was a, almost a non character. The book was about Holly and that time. The movie was about multiple characters. It was about Holly and Paul and da 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 da. But fine. So back to the question is the narrator gay? I don't think there's enough textual evidence to say that he is. Now, saying that Truman Capote is gay and that he has said that this is semi autobiographical, I feel like you can kind of make an argument that if this narrator is supposed to be a stand in for Truman, Sure, we know that Truman is, but maybe he meant for the narrator also to be. I'm just very leery of saying, oh, well, the author's gay, so obviously this character's gay. Okay,
1: so you can be leery about it. I'm going to say my interpretation is he's gay, because it is implied.
0: But where? Where is it implied that he's gay and not either asexual or or something else? Because you could make the same thing that maybe he's asexual. Yeah, you could. Um, But it just
1: doesn't come off that way. To me, it comes off that he is gay and has this sort of interesting relationship with Holly.
0: But is there any textual evidence for that? But that's my point.
1: It's it's implied, but it's not explicit. Because most of the book, and this is where I think, you know, when you're looking at it's more sensitive subjects, it's a little bit hard. Because Truman is really hammering you. Like, her name is Holly Golightly. Her last name is fucking Golightly. Almost everything is, like, bashed over your head. This is a the theme. I think this would be a good book for, like, early high school, just because his themes are so obvious for people to get. That if you are looking at, like, subtle language cues, they just don't
0: come off. Okay. It's because there's nothing in the text. And I think you could, sure, you could imply that he's gay. I think a lot of people just assume that he's gay, and that bothers me. It bothers me that people are just like, yep, yeah, that." Character is obviously gay because so the why author's gay. To you? Because I write things, and I'm not all my characters are, are queer. It, I think, it does a disservice to an author's credibility when you're like, oh, well, you're a white middle class queer lady, so all your characters are white middle class queer ladies. And if you write outside of your lane, nobody'll take you seriously.
1: Yes, there is this this tendency to ascribe things to the author that aren't necessarily there.
0: I'm not doing that based on
1: Truman compote I'm looking at sort of, you know, the wacky party that she's around, the sort of life that she's living, the people that she surrounds herself with tend to be nonconformist in society.
0: But their narrator wasn't part of that. He is.
1: He says he's not at home. They're both people who don't feel at home in society. They both feel like they're kind of outside of society. But I'm just saying way. there's
0: a variety of reasons why he yeah. might not feel at home. What if he wasn't white?
1: Yeah, but that would be kind of obvious because he doesn't use language. Like, you know, he, I'm just he specifically saying Whenever he mentions somebody's race, he'll mention their race. He never says, oh, well, there's
0: this white woman because almost everybody. Okay, but he also mentions less... gay people and ta- they, ta- they talk about dykes. He talks about... Well, the, she talks about dykes. Yes, and he and, and he doesn't respond. He wrote a story about lesbians and didn't realize that they were about lesbians according to Holly, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like if he was in, you know... I, so what does that mean? Okay, but Holly might reach stuff in there that isn't necessarily true. Um, Holly might interpret things that aren't, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Holly, Holly is not the most reliable person in this well no but I <laughs> i would agree with that
0: I, I just yeah
1: because uh, if you look at
0: so do you think his story talking was about actually, as
1: the gay guy at the party he's, he's talking about it Rusty yeah but that character is somebody who is fighting their homosexuality mm-hmm. and so maybe the narrator isn't but that's why I mean they
0: have I just this, don't think that I feel like if if he if his if he was supposed to be gay, not just accidentally gay, but if he was supposed to be gay, written as gay, that he would have responded to Rusty in a different way, or her comments about the dykes in a different way, or there would have been some breadcrumb for the But does he call reader. her on anything? He doesn't call her on anything. Exactly. But he doesn't even internalize talk. He internally thinks about what she says about like Wuthering Heights and like other stuff. Like he, he he does have a little bit of an opinion about stuff.
1: The only thing he gets, he really cares about is when she criticizes his writing and he almost wants to hit her.
0: Yes. And that's
1: the only time he's ever really critical of her. He's very loyal in that when she's his friend... He won't say anything, but when he's kind of angry at her, he's like, yeah, you know what, I kind of like the neighbor's little petition that she's passing around, and that's more spiteful than anything else, but he never calls her in anything, so when she's blatantly racist, he doesn't say a word. Right. Which I say could mean he could be just as easily... So I'll grant that he could be asexual, but for me, that felt like a gay character, but I've okay. talked about this probably like more than anybody
0: else would want to. But yeah, so okay, anyways, but they changed it and now he's not definitely not gay. In the in the mm-hmm. movie he's a gigolo, which obviously I think they did to make it less scandalous that she's also sleeping Around for money. You know, a sex worker. Two prostitutes fall in love. (laughs) That's what this movie really is. what got me
1: about that is... Okay, so going on to another theme. I know we're talking about changes, but this leads into another theme about the sexuality that's present here. Mm -hmm. Is that it seems at once very open sexuality, and at the same time very slut-shamey. Oh, yeah. And that pissed me off to no end, because this is the bullshit that women have to put up with where you're supposed to be a virgin and experienced. Right, right, right. You're talking about
0: the movie yeah specifically right now yeah yeah well and then even in the book where she they're having this conversation she and mag whose part was a lot smaller in the movie you mm-hmm. know there wasn't she wasn't a roommate yeah, these characters are much more fleshed out in the novel yes they are yes definitely but, but like she she no literally slut shames her and calls her a prude in the same conversation yeah. and gives her crap about both things there's no right way to be
1: it reminds me of the conversation for the breakfast club of you sleep around and then you're slut you don't do it you're a prude and women are still stuck these are your two roles it's right, Madonna or whore. Yeah, there's no middle ground.
0: Well, and then even not to jump too far to the end, but, like, we can have this this movie where she's making her own rules and she's happy and blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, at the end, it's, she's going to be solved by falling in love and heteronormative wins for the day. So, yes, you can be promiscuous and, yes, you can have body autonomy, but really, don't you just really want a ring on your finger and a husband? Oh, Of course you do, because you're a woman. And it's 1961. Yeah. <laughs> That yeah. was in.
1: I have something in here under themes
0: other what the fuckery, <laughs> and so implied child abuse. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. So it's like this throwaway line about how Rusty was abused as a child. Yeah. And then okay, and then for Holly, not only was she married at fourteen, married at fourteen, which is gross, but also at one point she's tallying up the number and of people under thirteen. She doesn't count them. She says, "Yeah, anything that happened under thirteen doesn't count." I, oh my was, god! <laughs> it was like one tiny little line, I was like. What? Whoa. What the fuck? Can we go back to that one line? Yeah. What the fuck? He doesn't call her on that either. Yeah, yeah.
1: There's a lot of stuff that just... Oh, well, yeah, Jose wants to end her marriage, and of course, he has every right to, because I'm a fallen woman for this reason. I'm like, he thinks you're pregnant, and he was going to marry you, and now he's not because of... What the fuck? You're... You, he's, yeah, yeah. Ah! Yeah. Do you think she was pregnant? I she could be using the pregnancy to trap him. We don't really know
0: and it is ambiguous. I kind of believe that she would have been I did not believe that she was pregnant okay. until after she got arrested he, he saw her in the hospital and I was like she wouldn't be in the hospital mm. if there hadn't been a reason and so she must have something must have happened. Yeah. You well know, the horse ride. Well and the and the horse ride yeah, yes because that was also in the book like she could and that's very much a trope losing the baby on, by riding a horse too much, right? Okay, but I thought, okay, so she probably did lose a baby because otherwise she wouldn't be. And then Jose would have just left her with a baby. And
1: that would yeah. just
0: pissed me off. And well, and then she couldn't have gone on to be her wild child self because in the book, she does continue to be herself. Her uncaged and she's off having adventures, mm-hmm. and a baby definitely would have cramped the style. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, but yeah, of course, for 1961 movie audiences, we just skip that whole baby part.
1: Well, and I. I- Okay, so this is something I, I kind of did like about her is that she does rescue him. That was such a traditional role reversal. Oh, in the book with the horses. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so she rescues him, and it is, I mean, if you look at it symbolically, she loses the baby, but she wasn't meant to be a mother. She is much more of this kind of masculine androgynous figure. I don't know. I, I actually like that part. Okay.
0: Yeah, it would have been kind of fun to actually watch them be running horses down. You know, it would have been much more exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have definitely. Okay, some other changes. We talked about the increase of role for Misty Yunyashi. Oh, okay. So we talked about this. The change in time. It wasn't the early forties, but the early sixties. Um, I thought that it, it made sense for that change to make yeah, to happen. I was okay with it was that. fine. It, I think that when you have stuff that takes place during World War II and you don't talk too much about World War II, it can be unsettling for people. So I was totally okay with them moving into the 60s i still got like a very gatsby flapper vibe out of a lot of this and it seems to work really well in the 60s everything old is new again 20s 40s 60s okay um paul being a kept man homeboy and in my quotes i wrote homeboys getting paid for sex but i did a typo and i wrote ho getting paid for (laughs) sex and then i just decided to leave it so this undermines his judgment of polly we had the new character of mrs money skirt Oh, this is an interesting change. Paul was a published writer already in the movie, and he was suffering under the weight of being called a quote promising writer, as opposed to in the novel where he is a struggling new writer. And I find that difference really interesting. Mm-hmm. I okay, again bringing my own baggage to it. When you're called, when you do something good and early, you're
1: promising, there's all that there's so pressure. much
0: expectations. Yeah. So I my short story collection came out years ago, and there is always the now this fear that I'm never going to be able to write anything halfway decent ever again, and it, it yeah it's 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 hard. So I felt for Paul a little bit more in the movie because of that. Where in the in the novel I also felt for him because he's the struggling author, and I love the thing about we're going to publish you but not pay you. Like that is yeah. so key today. We're going to let you blog for us for free. <laughs> yeah, art should be free. Yo. Right? Uh, yeah. yeah, we're yeah, paying listen. you an exposure. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but I so thought it changed don't his characters. Yeah, you married
1: somebody to do an art thing <laughs> or write a thing.
0: If you're enjoying Enjoying this podcast, please join our Patreon (laughs) at $1 a month. (laughs) But I think that it it was as a change it made Paul more worldly. He he was a writer. He's Promising, he's suffering under that, but at the same time, he has the ability. But he's obviously hit some kind of block, and now he's got this woman who's paying all of his bills. He's a kept man. She's like his pet writer, and but, That's he, but so it, disheartening too. It is. It's it, such an ego kill. Well, at the, it, because of how she treated his writing, I think like that can be a good sort of relationship. It just has to be an honest relationship. Mm-hmm. And Paul is so dismissive of her. He's so not invested like he he doesn't i was like you're a bad gigolo man like you're (laughs) supposed to get excited when your person shows up like you're supposed to act like you're enjoying it
1: act like she does enjoy exactly she's all coy
0: and flirty paul was like he answers the phone he's like whatever yeah okay bye like he's and i was like my god miss many Skirt." You could afford better. I just is all I have to say about that. But I, I think that he needed to have because if he was a struggling author, then it would have been a bigger jump for when he's actually making money towards the end. We don't really have a lot about Paul's journey, but it is important. Like he's a he's a, an author who's being a kept man, and then he stands up for himself. He gets out of that lifestyle, and then his art is able to go forth and flower, and he's able to make money as a writer, apparently enough that he's going to be able to support a wife. At the end, you know, he's, they're going to make it together. His his little journey was was different. Yeah. Um, Holly's character, she was toned down in the movie. She was made much more joyful, which made her sadness more real. I thought. Mm. I didn't like her in the book. I well, did she's not- a terrible person. Yeah, but in the movie, she's terrible, but she's... Charming. Charming, yes. It's kind of like how sometimes there's a bad guy, but you like to watch them, and you're kind of secretly rooting for them.
1: Well, that's the thing with the book, is I could kind of understand why he was interested in her, because she's just... So fun. I know. She's manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> but she's a legitimately awful person in a lot of ways. And at the same time, she's 19. Yeah. And I think we forget that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Is She's 19, and she doesn't understand the world. And Everyone was awful at 19. <laughs> well, a lot of people really were. I mean, you do have to grow I up quite was. a bit. Yes. And so, you know, for a 19-year-old, she has to grow up. And if you just judge somebody at their 19, I, I would not want to be judged by the way I was when I was a teenager.
0: Yeah, no, fair, fair enough, yeah, definitely. I just, man, in the book, she, but Audrey
1: Hepburn is older
0: than that. Oh, like, she's thirty-one. Yeah, she was thirty-one when she made this movie. And also, lovely little bit of trivia: originally, like they were going to cast Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe, Monroe, which would have brought so much more of a sex appeal oh, yes. to this. It would have changed Holly. But if you look completely. In- like Like, the parallels between
1: Marilyn Monroe's life and Holly Golightly Mm -hmm. that would have had so much irony like that would have been a completely different movie to watch oh yeah
0: for sure and it would have just been so much more sultry like I like yeah because yeah Audrey Hepburn she's a little rottenness she's very boyish she looked much more like the Holly that was described in the book the flat bottom and the flat chest and and, and whatnot the tall angular okay
1: and you're right about like when you first see her and she puts on those shirt backwards I'm like how did she button up the shirt from behind
0: especially stumbling
1: yeah hung over and she's
0: got like perfect makeup of course and a soft focus <laughs> you know what when i am woken up from uh, drinking all night and i'm hungover and stumbling towards the door i wish that there was somebody around to do soft and focus on me <laughs> of course it only takes you
1: 10 minutes to go from bumbling in bed to completely ready to go out your well yes actually dress. that is true yeah i'm very speedy <laughs> <No>. <laughs> But yeah, she makes like her eyelashes are still on. Yeah, under the mask, there's no like black runny mascara. There's no like marks oh, on the pillow.
0: No. Uh, no, she's too beautiful. She's yeah. too. She's too magical. Yeah, she's yeah magic pixie dream dance. So, do you want to define that? Since that is just Magic pixie worst dream girl Oops. Uh, ever, can we dis- <laughs> define it by saying Holly Go Lightly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's also used. It's as- it's it's a it's a male fantasy. Yeah. manic, so she's all over the place. Pixie, she's She's magical and flirty and fun and not of this world and she isn't based in reality. And And she'll always love the stuffy nerd and bring him out of his shell. That's her job. job. That's her job. Yep. And she's going to inspire you with her craziness and her zest for life and she's just perfect in every possible way.
1: Let's go do things we've never done before and steal Halloween masks.
0: Yes. Yeah. So the other mm-hmm. characters, though, like, Rusty's character was a lot smaller in the movie than in the book. Mag as well. That was fine, I guess. I don't
1: know. I kind of wish Mag was, like, the tall
0: Amazon. I wish she had been around. Oh, my God. And what a bitch move to be like, oh, my, this lady at the... Okay, first of all, so they replaced the bitch move. Because in the book, the bitch move was her, like, bad-mouthing Mag when she's out of the room be like, she looks healthy. Yeah, and this it, one's it- like, oh, she's just
1: a bore. And then
0: she just let her get drunk. She, well, and then let her fall flat on her face. She yeah. could have stopped her from... like That's like, that's The kind of fall that breaks a nose, says somebody who has fallen. Yeah, not cool, Holly.
1: But did you find her charming at all in the book? Can you understand why the narrator liked hanging out with her?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it's in the forties, and she's different, and it's that time period, and like living outside of the modern, you know, of the conventions of the time, and she's sparkly and fun, and yeah, I get the appeal to some people of the manic pixie dream girl. This one particularly seemed. Cruel and. And considering all the wacky people there at the party, she's not the only manic pixie dream girl in the world. Well, she was in the book. She and Mad were the only women at that party. In the movie, other women came. Yeah, it was a good
1: mix in there. But there
0: was more. There were women and yeah. men, and a lot of drunken ladies, especially my mirror lady. Oh my god, I love you so <laughs> much, mirror lady. That is me in 1961. I think that was you, maybe a couple years ago. <laughs> me in my you, 20s. Yeah, me at 19. it seems like you really <laughs> you got to that character. I really liked that character. <laughs> Yeah, so the love story, the happy ending aspect for most of the film.
1: It reminded me of Valley of the Dolls, that party scene.
0: Mm, Okay, yeah, I can see that. Oh, we're so crazy. We're so crazy. We're going to answer our telephone in a suitcase. We're going to climb around under people's feet. We're going to put our cigarette under a carpet for some reason. I don't know, Whatever. Okay. Okay, so here's like a nice little thing that I stole off the internet that I will link to on the blog. Okay. For most of the film, the irresistible, irresponsible icon that is Hepburn's Holly Golightly signifies glamour, alluring idiosyncrasy, and nonconformity. Yet by the end, much of her subversive potential has been undone. Like a crackerjack box, the effervescent Holly initially appears to contain a limitless set of possibilities, but the film's archetypal Hollywood ending yields only the generic prize, the union of hero and heroine. So yeah, that's just confirmation that the heterosexual monogamous marriage symbolized by the ring can be Holly's only permissible
1: fate. Yeah, so this goes a lot to the ending. I actually do have something similar with the movie, and it's it's got this thing where it, it does actually mirror the irony that's being set up. So the Cracker Jack prize is supposed to be a surprise, and yet when they talk to the Tiffany salesman, he has this thing, you know, he's like, oh, there's still Cracker Jack prizes. Gives you a feeling of solidarity, almost a continuity with the past, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so the prize is not the prize. It's very ironic. And yeah. it is conformity. But the prize is not a surprise at yeah. all. Yeah. Molly's escape from husband, undermined by a love story ending. So she is not going to escape this. This is... Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. But while we're talking about her husband, before we go on to some of my other changes... <clears throat> so her husband was Jed Clampett. Okay. Oh
1: my god. He was so stereotypical in the book. He was such a stereotype. He even
0: had like the straw in his yeah, mouth. he did the, the toothpick or whatever. Yes, okay, and then he's played by Jed Clampett. Who, this is before the Beverly Hillbillies, but in honor of Jed Clampett. <clears throat> Now listen to a story about a New York girl Living fast and free, her life is quite a whirl Then one day a writer dude moves in And for you can St. Nicker, she has fallen in Love, love that is. is Deep and full of movie magic timing Next thing you know, the pairs of love struck duo Running through the streets in Masters Being Fools There's no place that they would rather be But Holly gets her so it's all c'est la vie Adios, my dear Off to another adventure Sure. The Lulu Follies. Oh my god! I should
1: still take you to karaoke night. <laughs> uh,
0: yes. Okay. So the Lulu May Follies. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was Thank you. Thank you. Did you write that? I did. Just like as I was watching it, I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and then I had to like <laughs> pause the movie and jot that down. Um, okay, Holly's eyes. Holly wears glasses in the book because she has bad eyes. Holly does not have bad eyes in the movie. As someone with bad eyes, I like it when a character has bad eyes, and it makes them, you know, like this realistic. Is ableism, really. What? That's ableism that she has bad eyes. No, that they took that out. Oh yes. Sorry, I was like, wait a minute. No, because you can't have a movie heroine who's all nearsighted and has trouble seeing things. Plus, I mean, Audrey Hepburn is beautiful, and her eyes are all big and perfect, and you know, yay her. So. Awesome. But yeah, I liked that in the book she obviously couldn't see shit. That was great.
1: Well, yeah, if you want to talk about symbols and how glasses represent masks and you can't really connect with her. Yeah, so she, they she are purposely her
0: puts up these dark prescription yeah. glasses. Yeah,
1: yeah, and even when she and Paul are wearing the Halloween
0: masks, mm-hmm.
1: um, I took a very existential tone on this where you're free only when you can not be Put with your identity. Mm. You want to expand on that? <laughs> yeah. Part of the idea of existentialism is that we are cursed with freedom. We are born into a world, and we didn't choose this, but we're forced into it, and so therefore we are. Uh, so with these masks, we are suffering under an identity if you're a sister, your family is going to treat you this way your entire life, you're that identity, you can't break out of it, and it sucks. No matter where you go, your friends are, oh, you're that girl. You're that guy, and they put you into a box, and it's, you're, it's impossible to break out of that. So when you have a mask on, you can leave that identity away, and you can be who you truly want to be. So yes, a little bit of that in a nutshell. Okay. And that's definitely Holly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she is all about the mask and trying to be her own sort of free person. Right. So, back to the ring, oh, you know, okay. what Paula gives her in the book is a St. Christopher medallion that he gets at Tiffany's. Right. Because she's the traveler. Hmm. And yeah, we don't have that romantic plot. And I was just pissed at the movie for this. Right. Like, the book wasn't
0: my favorite. I thought it was kind cool. of interesting. I don't mind that I read it. I'm happy I read it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Skipping, and, skipping, and, skipping and to the end. I want to stick with you with, with the thing that gets engraved, though. In the movie... Literally, it's her husband's Cracker Jack box. Then he takes this ring that he doesn't want because it's crap. It's just a crap out of a box. He gives it to Paul. Paul keeps it as a memento of the dude he shared Cracker Jacks with who kind of fucked up his perception of Holly by realizing that Holly was married. But he keeps this. And now she's a
1: tainted woman, whereas being a prostitute wasn't tainted, but being married was tainted. Well, he's
0: he's a prostitute too so you know yeah. pot but black kettle blah so anyways but he keeps this ring and then get you know so then there they have it engraved but he doesn't say to her like when they're at tiffany's and they're like we can get something engraved he doesn't pull it out and be like your husband gave this to me <laughs> but like like i just have, like if i was hanging out with my frivolous friends or whatever and then i yanked out a ring out of their pocket i'd be like well where did this come from like what is of course she's not she doesn't care because she's holly so she's all like looking at her own self yeah, of but course
1: she would carry a ring in your pocket
0: of course because you're a man you're just waiting for the right girl that whatever just, I think okay that so she's random like she'll just pull out packets I, of sugar just because packets that's... of nuggets out of her backpack yeah. um <laughs> no so but i paused it when i was watching it i couldn't see what was engraved on it it, it was supposed to be her initials right but could you see what it was? No, it was it was all tiny. blurry, and I and it's It's a crap. crap well, I know, yeah. I know, I know. But I was wondering, like, because they did show a close up of mm-hmm. it, but I just couldn't quite get it. No, I didn't get it. Okay, I don't know if he picked H L or you know or so, H G. If you would like to contact us with your yeah, answers, please. If you have, because I screened, I like saved it and like looked at it, and I just couldn't quite get it. Anyways, so anyway, so this ring that was tossed aside by her husband, but now he's going to use it, and then at the end, of course, she gets it, puts it on her finger, and. Yeah. Yeah they go. Yeah, okay. Blah, blah, blah. okay, so themes. <clears throat> I felt one of the major themes was the difference between artifice and reality. Yes. I really felt that like that part in the book where she's talking about the people going to the prison and they're acting all happy and they're all dressed up and it's like a party and then they get on the train to go home and then it's like back to your real life and everybody's sad and it's like they put on this brave face, this mask of happiness while they're there, but then that's not real. And there's so many other examples of things that are real versus not yeah, real. Yeah,
1: domestic, but she's fucking up at it. She says she's happy, but this is like right after her brother died and she's obviously depressed She can be really cold, and yet she's very loyal to her friends. She hides her fear with this mask of, well, I don't care, I'm just going to kind of go about my day. And they're like, you're going to go to prison. So right. like, oh, no, 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 I uh, won't. I won't go to prison. And he's saying you can't hide from this. Right. But this also, to me, goes like she's this very
0: surface glamour girl, but there's a hardcore survivalist in there. Right. And I thought that was interesting. And on my my fake versus real list, I have the books on Holly's shelf. So they're all in the book. The her books on her shelf are basically her scrapbooks and her notes about the people that she's you know trying to get information about or like mm-hmm. you know to mold she herself. She's
1: a gold in, digger in a social life.
0: Right. To mold herself into. But it looks like it's just their regular books and stuff and she has this line about like you know i gotta learn about horses i learn about baseball and if a guy's not into horses or baseball then he's not into girls (laughs) okay whatever (laughs) anyways but then and then in the movie too she like now when she knows that the library exists apparently she'd never been in there before now she's going to go to the library and learn how to you know and she's going to use the books to study about south america and stuff which to me makes me think she really had been to the library before but it was so important to paul to be put in that position of showing her something, yes, it makes she, her much
1: more of an authoritarian masculine, right? And so she
0: always can. Con- she's
1: much more dependent in the movie. Like, she asks him to go with her to Sing Sing, and it's like, she's done that
0: how many times? I I don't understand why that was there. She asks him to go with her to the bus station. Yeah. And I think part of that was to, maybe just to have him in those scenes. But it is much more feminine to have her dependent. Oh, yeah. And so she remakes herself to whatever the guy needs. And so for Paul, he's the writer. So, of course, oh, I've never been in a library before, but... I don't buy it. I think that that was just a put on for his benefit. She reminds me a lot of Scarlett O'Hara.
1: Um, yeah. You know, very glamorous, very social, but again, when you come down to it, she's going to survive and she will
0: fuck over anybody to survive. Right. And her reputation. She's not as wanton as she pretends. At least that's what she says. Only 11 lovers, after all. At 19. She said 11. Well,
1: 11 lo- lovers, but she's 19. She's oh, yes. When she yeah, says yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, yes,
0: yes. Okay. <laughs> no judgment no thank you <laughs> her, her reputation is otherwise and you know whatever and so that's ultimately what fucks up her relationship her chances with jose but okay Let's see here. i thought
1: sort of the weight thing was interesting because when we see her chronologically at the youngest she's starving she's stealing to survive and then her husband says oh she was so plump
0: yeah and then later
1: on after her brother dies she gains weight again so there is Something going on with that,
0: yeah, definitely. Well, and that's an internal misogynist thing about how we conform again our bodies to be. Whatever and this is they also kind be. of
1: the time when, like. Super skinny came into fashion, and then like yeah, Twiggy, slim shirt, is like, in, yeah. and you know all of
0: that stuff. But it, it definitely she was starving and skinny when she was roaming the countryside stealing eggs, and then she's technically starving and skinny when she's roaming New York, you know, taking tips. You yeah. know, it's that same kind of survival thing. It's it's convenient, but it's chic to be that thin. But oh my God, you guys, she's so skinny in this way. There was a couple of scenes where like her, like Audrey Hepburn's arm would move, and I would look at her arm and her wrist in particular, and be like. It's just bone. I not skinny shaming. I'm just saying <laughs> she could have put on a yeah, couple. It could of be her natural svelteness. I don't time. know. But man, it was it was it's bony, bony. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I just don't like it about that that's held
1: up as the only beauty standard. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I like Marilyn Monroe is that she yeah was a little bit more voluptuous and did each of her own. But it, it would have, as I said, I think Marilyn Monroe would have been a much more interesting choice because she does have more of the
0: sexuality. That Holly's supposed to have. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that they wanted to play down the sexuality part of it. Yeah. It was too threatening.
1: She's she's almost a boy in this
0: movie. Um, again, with our duality aspect, we have our book smarts versus street smarts, her research. She has does a lot of research in order to present herself as flip. So in the book, he follows her to the library and she's doing her research. Like that's that's on her own. That's she didn't need him to show her what the library was. And she had her scrapbook. So she's researching to present herself as la-la-la, somebody who doesn't care and somebody who just happens to know things and will say the right thing at the right time and all of that stuff. And then we have the the major theme of duality, which is the cages and the zoo and the prison and the constraints both real and imagined. here's a
1: quick question. Do you think she really didn't know that she was passing drug messages? In which? The book
0: or the movie? Either. In the movie, you could totally see her as being kind of an idiot. But in the book... Okay, so... Let's do them in an order. In the book, I am very confident in saying she knew because when they're at the party and he references it, he makes some comment about it. She gives him this wink, but it's like a dangerous wink. Like she warns him to shut up. Yeah. She doesn't want that coming into this world, her party friends and her this and that, and like her quest to find a husband and all of our, you know, make money. That's separate. That's very separate, and she warns him basically with a look and a wink and whatever. So no, she knew in the book; she totally knew. In the movie, she's so flippy. Oh my god! Blah 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 blah. But then I feel like when there's that thing when we actually see her give her, him give her the message, and it's like it's going to be snowing in New Orleans, and she has this pause moment. She goes snow in New Orleans, and then I feel like she kind of. Chooses to not know. I feel like she still knows, but she is so invested in the role that she's playing of the simpleton. coping mechanisms. Yes, so I feel like she knew in both, and it just it was different how she you know pretended to not know. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree, or do you think? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, but okay. So we have our cages. She hates the zoo. She hates cages that was less in the in the movie she has a whole thing about the wild thing but she has like a bird in her apartment a, a parrot cage at the party like oj's looking at it at the beginning of that scene so it felt kind of strangely put there in the book she buys a narrator the bird cage but makes him promise to not ever put anything inside of it you know and she well, did de- the parrot is never mentioned afterwards so i wonder if it's like one of those things that I just, I it's know, like it's, a weird set dressing like yeah. it was there but it's, it's not and, and it's never mentioned again And you don't really see it anywhere else so i i don't I don't know it was very strange. I was like, somebody didn't read the book, <laughs> so I, I
1: don't know. Maybe somebody thought it'd be fun to bring a parrot to a party. Yeah, I, that, well, it felt more like that because her apartment, there's nothing there, and yeah, it's, and it's
0: not there, and the cat's there, but yeah, whatever. Okay, hey, 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 sorry,
1: speaking have of the cat cats,
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, so she doesn't want to be caged. Love is a cage. Ugh, so says somebody who doesn't understand what love is, in my opinion. Yeah, but in the book, I mean, there was there was that love. Um, okay. If love is a cage,
1: then you're loving wrong. Yeah, but like, that's why I felt so bad about Joe Bell is that last scene with him is really heartbreaking where he knows that she's messed up and he just doesn't care. He still recall her, the limo, and he hands her the flowers, but they drop on the floor and he just has to go
0: cry. Yeah, Joe. The Poor bartenders Joe. left out of the movie, yeah, which Joe is Bell. fine. I didn't care. You like Joe. Joe liked talkie, so gay Joe, but whatever. Okay. I had a couple other little
1: I thought it was interesting how loyal she was because as a survivor, it would be super easy for her to turn on Mr. Tomato and, okay, I'll just give evidence and move on with my life and that will be easy. And oh, she doesn't no. do that.
0: No, but she doesn't do that not because she's loyal. She doesn't do that because that would fuck her up in New York. She would not be but safe. But New York anyway. It doesn't matter. Like, she, she has to leave that safety there. She could eventually come back, ride triumphant or whatever. But, like, you don't mess with the mafia. If you, That's a survival thing. She even says, like, I'm not going to be the kind of person who would tell like that would shut too many doors for me Mm. so uh, that's a calculated decision there for sure but truman capote in a playboy interview in 1968 said of holly holly was a symbol of all these girls who came to new york and spin in the sun for a moment like mayflies and then disappear i wanted to rescue one girl from that anonymity and preserve her for posterity so i think that he did a good job with that because she's definitely been preserved for posterity
1: you know, we're supposedly bits and pieces were based on different women that he do. Yes. Um, so the scene when she freaks out about her brother that was based on an actual person.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 his Truman Capote's mother was lived in New York and did some had some adventures too. Some more trivia: Moon River was written specifically for Audrey Hepburn because, and it's all in one octave because she had no singing training. So they needed it to be simple. So I thought that was interesting. And let's see here. Oh, okay. So here we go. The $10 that Holly and Paul have to spend at Tiffany's would be worth $77 today. The $50 that Paul received for his writing would have been $384.98. That is pretty impressive. So can I talk about what I thought the main point was? Or you- sure. Okay. So for me... The point of the book was to point out the lengths in which people go to fool themselves and others, the duality we all feel in terms of self-actualization versus self-preservation. You really can't cage a wild thing. Wild things are inherently hard to pin down. They might be tragic or joyful. It kind of depends on when you ask them, I thought. So that, to me, felt like the point of the book.
1: To me, it was a lot about the unattainable. Okay. So Breakfast at Tiffany's. There is no Breakfast at Tiffany's. Tiffany's, for her, represents stability, and yet stability that she doesn't want. So it's... The unattainable in a lot of different ways. Right. So she wants the stability of a marriage, but she's never going to have a guy that's going to give her that. And in a way she doesn't want it. She likes the idea of it.
0: Right. Well, and that to me I felt like she it feels like you tell yourself a lie so many times you're trying to make it true for you. Yeah. And she
1: also so, obviously had some anxiety issues.
0: And so she was
1: looking for ways to make her life orderly because she didn't have that. So I thought she was really had that interesting dynamic between wanting order and wanting chaos.
0: Yeah. Well, I think she wanted to be the person who wanted chaos, but she actually wanted order you know but she's afraid of it too well yeah because it's constrained because you know order means being a child bride at age 14 to some texan guy who already has kids yeah that was so gross she goes to a lot of 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 effort to look Mm. effortless i felt like that was the thing and she had this idea of how she wanted to be perceived so she wants to be top banana in the shop department. She's terribly brazen. She says, oh, don't you think I'm terribly brazen? She wants him to say, yes, yes, you are. I think it's important to note that in the book, the only person who goes to Tiffany's is our narrator, who goes and buys her the the St. Christopher's medal. She doesn't go to Tiffany's. So and it's not
1: mentioned very often either. No.
0: Well, she has her little spiel about it, and yeah. then that's basically it. And I actually kind of felt like, it was not real. I, she was saying that. Think about it this way. If you're the kind of girl who needs to make her money and, you know, tips and all of that stuff, and then you can be like, oh, sometimes when I'm angsty, I go to Tiffany's and, oh, it makes me feel so much better and blah, 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 blah from your rich guy friends. That conversation it didn't happen as a private, intimate conversation. They were at the party when she's talking about that right, in the book. So I feel like that's still part of the show, the Holly show, is about how Tiffany's is so wonderful, and it makes you feel so good, and nothing bad could ever happen there. Like, seriously, I, I just didn't buy it. In the movie, it felt more real because, again, we open up with her literally eating breakfast at Tiffany's, and it's like, you know, she definitely seems to have some kind of a relationship. And that seems like to be the unattainable thing. Like, you know, but I feel like the point of the movie was different, but whatever. So in the book, I just, you know, she wasn't about the Tiffany's as much as it was kind of a symbol there, but it really felt, I think, almost maybe the misunderstanding of who she was. He was like, oh, Tiffany's is important. I'm going to get her this, this medal. And then, you know, he assumed that she would lose it. She didn't lose it. She needs it for her traveling to go on and whatnot. But I just, I don't know. I didn't really buy it in the book as much as no. But as when he you clung that's to her. the
1: title. That's when you pay attention to it.
0: Yes. And I see the narrator paid attention to it. And then the author obviously used that too. But I feel like for Holly, it was just something that she said. I didn't quite buy it. For, for her to be an important thing, as much as the narrator was like, oh, I get this feeling of angst, and this is what she referenced. And But again, you think that the point of the book was about the unattainable, which makes sense for Breakfast at Tiffany's. I think the point of the book was about the idea that we put forth of ourselves, And to me, that is her putting forth this idea that, that she wants Breakfast at Tiffany's, where does she, does she not? I don't know. I don't know what Holly actually wants. So...
1: As a quick diversion, because I will come back to this, what do you think of the naming conventions? Because again, they are not subtle. Right. You know, so we have the no name cap because we can't name things
0: until they belong to somebody or something. Yes. Yeah, so go lightly. That's. Right. So really obvious, and from her husband. Her husband was Doc Golightly. Yeah, again. she kept her husband's name when she was in New York.
1: Yeah, it's Granny Weatherall. It, it's the Weatherall is ironic, and so he's kind of an. It's ironic that she gets her name from him, and she took the name rather than who he was.
0: Yeah, and and then she changed her first name, and not, yeah, but, but she took the spirit of the name. Right, he was. But just, I also feel like she got the name Holly while she was in Hollywood. Because I'm pretty sure that OJ knew that she was Lulu Ray, and I could not stop with OJ in Los Angeles. Oh my God, I was, could not stop. He with was that. hilarious. <laughs> so, so I know, like he he was like, okay, so Lulu Ray, go lightly. Go lightly is a good last name, but it can't be Lulu but Ray. If
1: you look at Meg, what was her last name? Wild Wildwood wild something. Wildwood yeah. from the Wildwoods. We're hill people. She says. Actually, I grew up on a street called Wildwood. Well, there you go. <laughs> and then the gay guy, um, he's named after a rusty really f- trawler. No, Quinn. Uh, oh. Oh, the guy with the Q name, who's I can't pronounce. Yes, okay. Yeah. And then it, Jose, it, it the it most... Sounds c- like Ackley, since it sounds like acquiescence, but starts with a Q. And there's George Quinansitz. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm sorry, I butchered his name. But he's a very famous sort of gay person from England. Okay. Yeah, he was an artist. He does, like, whenever you look at, like, 1950s super gay art. Super that's gay. A, yeah, yeah. It is super gay. We, we need a super gay sticker. Rusty Trawler. Yeah. Almost like Traveler, but not... Yeah, that tomato was just, just a ridiculous. Sally, thing.
0: Sally, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and Mister O'Shaughnessy, the the lawyer. That's yeah, very. Oh, I wonder what. Yeah, so has got going on, and
1: that's why I wonder. Well, are these people like who they are, or are they their artifice? Is Holly really Holly Golightly, or is that an artifice of her?
0: I, that is, to me, I think the artifice. I think that that is who she's decided to be, who she's decided to present herself as. I would guess that she was not calling herself Holly Golightly in Africa traveling with these other guys. I'm sure she has some other new flighty name. But
1: we we go to identities, and is Holly really looking for an identity? Because at 19 you really don't know who you are. Yeah. And there is that kind of push-pull between you want to go out and have adventures and freedom, um, and it's also really scary, so I can see where she's got this issue with security and yet wants freedom.
0: 19 is definitely a time when you're figuring yourself out and you might make choices that you wouldn't otherwise make, but that's what I feel like is Holly's still figuring out who she is. Sure, the author's still, or the narrator's still figuring out who he is. He's becoming a writer throughout the course of this, you know, novella. Yeah, so it all makes sense to me. But the the title of Breakfast at Tiffany's seems like an idea that you want to have. You want to be the kind of person who's like, oh, I love Breakfast at yeah, Tiffany's. It's unattainable. Sure. <laughs> it's it's, <laughs> it's both. Worried. I think it can be both. I can think, think it can be the yeah. The, I think the it's pers- the idea that they... that You want. Yeah. Sure. Okay. But the point of the movie I felt was different. Oh, God. I hated the ending in the movie. Okay, but before we get to the ending, so the point of the movie seems to be adventures are fine, but wild things really secretly want to be caged, and you're not really going to be happy until you settle down.
1: Because who goes after the cat? In the book, it's Holly. In the movie, it's Paul. Paul's the one saying, you're a bitch. and Right we need to take care of this cat and then she feels sad and then she goes after it, the cat and him and whatever and so in the, oh b- my god I'm in the book
0: out. she goes back for the cat but she can't find it and then she leaves and then he continues to look for the cat after she's gone and finds it adopted by somebody else which you know good for you cat <laughs> Yeah, Cat yeah, Cat is a survivor.
1: The book in is rather ambiguous and you can make of it what you will. He gets a postcard. He sees this photograph of like these African statues that look a lot like her.
0: Mm -hmm. she's Um, off still having adventures somewhere
1: yeah but that happens after the postcard the postcard is oh I'm having so much fun I'm with this guy who's married and has kids but it's fun I'm having fun I'm going lightly around the world Right. so is that her identity is she just the wanderer is she the gypsy who just needed to accept herself as a gypsy
0: well at what point do you start believing your own bullshit I feel like Holly is telling the story so much that eventually you get boxed in and there's no other story to tell Like, you get trapped in your own stuff. And I also find it
1: interesting how... She doesn't want to box in the cat, and yet all these naming conventions, they are very much boxing people in. And that is something that Holly does. She judges everybody very superficially.
0: Well, and she uses that naming convention. She names the narrator Fred, because that instantly sets up this boundary. She doesn't friend-zone him, she Fred-zones him. It was a little
1: incestuous. In the movie, it made me uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, Because she's kind of Fred Fred after her brother. And then they sleep together. And yes, in the book, though, it made sense. She called him Fred, she put him in that box. You are not a sexual. This is her third film with brother
1: fucker themes.
0: You are, okay, but she says to him, Your name is now Fred. I'm going to call you after my brother. I have instantly put up this boundary between us. I have made it very clear what kind of relationship we're going to have. You it's been on to you've been Fred zone. You've been Fred zoned, yes. <laughs> the, I have to credit that to my husband, the love of my life, who said <laughs> she was, she Fred zoned him and it was great. So. I love you. Okay, speaking of love, love is not a cage if you do it right. I'm just going to say that this movie tells us a different story. It tells us that cages... Okay, I think I might have
1: a bit of a misnomer from the last one of, oh, love sucks. I don't think love sucks. I am a romantic at heart. I just don't like it that that is... That is the antithesis of the book is that she didn't have this romantic relationship. She didn't get caged. She was her own person. And for ill or good, she's just going to accept the world and she's going to move through it. Yes. She is the survival. She'll figure out something. Yes. And then, no, we can't have that. We can't have an independent woman. And so it is so subversive of what the good message is.
0: Yeah. No, and we've talked about this before. When the the movie completely changes the point of the book, it's a disappointment. And I feel like we understand why the movie did that, for its time, for the happy ending, for Audrey Hepburn, for all of those reasons. I get it, but it is a little disappointing that it became so cliche, happy ever after, in the rain, now we're together and all the problems are solved. I like casablanca's ending i like that I she like goes off his and ending too. goes to her own life and he does his well, own thing I, And I, didn't she didn't audrey hepburn do that in a different movie was it roman holiday i'm trying to remember no that the, had a romantic ending. Did it have a, there was some other movie she was in where like they didn't end up together like they she went a different direction i, I could swear i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm conflating something else <laughs> well know? she
1: did have like two later films but neither one were received this okay. is like
0: her one great
1: movie role you don't think Roman Holiday was a great movie role? I think it was okay, but it's not as well known as Breakfast. Well, at Tiffany's. no, not as well so known. So this is sure. her
0: iconic role, right? When you think of Audrey Hepburn, you picture her in the outfit from Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, yeah, you know that that black dress. Which again, do I mean, we want to get into symbolism here? That one black dress. All she did was change the trappings, changes the light, the the necklace, changes the earrings, changes the hair, changes the scarf. It's the same dress multiple times it again is like this chameleon thing changing to fit the circumstance the so to understand way that Holly passion, does
1: it's all about the accessories
0: oh yeah for mm-hmm. sure well and in the movie she's got this great line about like you can tell what a man thinks of you by the earrings he gives you you know the mind reels she says as she looks at these sparkly earrings but then she freaking wears later so you know it's like
1: okay yeah okay. okay my favorite comment about the jewelry that men buy women is it comes from the office and it's jim's wife I forget her Pam. Pam, thank you. And she says, Women never buy heart jewelry. Whenever you see a woman with heart jewelry, it's something a guy gave her. And that is absolutely true with my jewelry. I've never bought heart jewelry, but my ex that's what he would buy. And it just seems like mm. huh. That's what guys think of. Well, I want to be romantic. It should be in a heart, because hearts
0: are romantic. Hearts are sinful. I don't know. I think I bought my daughter a heart necklace. Well, yeah, but she's little. a girl. I I'm mean, trying to think. If I have... I, have yeah. you
1: ever bought yourself heart jewelry?
0: No. I don't buy myself a lot of jewelry, though. I don't think I've ever It's either a
1: ring or it's hearts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the real way you know what a man thinks of you when he buys you jewelry is if he's paid attention, because I yes. cannot tell you how many men and women both have bought me earrings, and y'all, I do not have my ears pierced. So (laughs) 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 just going to (laughs) say, although I did accidentally, my daughter picked out earrings for one of her aunties at a craft fair and I neglected to remember that her auntie does not have her ears pierced and then felt very awkward at Christmas time and was like, oh, I've just done that thing where I assume (laughs) that you had your ears pierced. But you don't, so <clears throat> sorry, Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the the movie kind of changed the point. It makes a different point. I don't like the point as much, but the movie's fine. And I can understand like if you saw this and you hadn't read the book, how and and you're like in that you're like, oh, I'm going to see a romantic comedy. This is a romantic comedy. And You're like, I'm going to see a movie that has a really sweet, sappy ending. This movie has a sweet, sappy ending. It so has- that's great. That's whatever. And Audrey Hepburn is a joy to watch. She's adorable and she makes that character okay to exist like you don't hate the character I, I I rolled my eyes a lot but that's me but I can understand like I can see in 1961 my gosh what a lovely beautiful breath of fresh air and she's just she's adorable and she's beautiful and she's brunette and she has brown eyes and Are she doesn't have big boobs here? and no what I just like against blondes oh yeah what, what the <laughs> hell here, here. Jennifer's blonde everybody <laughs> <laughs> it was great whatever The book was very different. I'm really glad I read the book. I really liked the book. I liked the darkness of the book. I loved the ending of the book.
1: It is surprisingly dark. It looks like it's a happy, fluffy Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it is a lot like The Great Gatsby. There's a lot...
0: Of Of, darkness. Yeah, the undertone here is kind of messed up. I could have done without the framing device. Eh, But, you know, again, that's fine. I'm really glad we read uh, the book. I'm really glad we watched the movie. I I just want to go back to something (laughs) of, you know, the No, I'm wrapping up.
1: No, sorry, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) After reading the book, the movie is a lot more what the fuck. Mm-hmm. If you just watch the film and you haven't read the book, you'll like it. It's fine. It's, it is it is what it is. It's very enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. But what I liked about the relationship between the two is it is a little bit like in the movie where she's the happy-go-lucky spirit, she's the go-lightly, and he's Mr. Stuffshirt. And their gifts to each other very much reflect their understanding and changing of each other. So she gives him the cage, but it's never going to actually cage something. He's not going to be that person. He gives her the St. Christopher's medal because he understands that she needs protection but she's a go lightly travel person
0: yeah in the movie she gives him a typewriter ribbon to encourage him to be what he actually wants to be and not just stay the kept man and he gives her an engraved ring. ring so that she can be a wife there's nothing wrong with being a wife but that's not a woman's only role Okay.
1: The last it. thing is, what is your interpretation of the end in the book? Because it is ambiguous.
0: Do you take it as a happy end or as a dark end? He's a successful writer, and she's still off having adventures. Great. Okay, but is... Because the postcard, if you look at the postcard... She sent a postcard, and she was like, I'm happy! Sure, Maybe she is, maybe she's not. She's still playing that role, whatever. She's but then she's making bad choices about men. Let's not... Let's not slut shame... Or oh. sex work shame, making bad choices or bad decisions about men. I don't know because I don't because all we have in the postcard is what she said. But then what we know after the fact is she's traveling with two men in Africa and obviously has no problem sleeping with a local. So like,
1: you go, Holly. I am the one who said earlier, don't judge nineteen year olds too harshly. I'm sure she grew up. Became a much more worldly person, much less judgmental person. As she became, a, you know, I'm hoping she became a better person. And it's not slut shaming to say, okay, you're with a married guy who has kids, and you're still fighting the security versus freedom.
0: Okay, I, I mean, I, I feel like the the husband who's cheating on his wife can be shamed because he's doing yeah, something that's a dick wrong. Move. Yes, that's a dick move. <laughs> Don't be thinking with your dick. But I, again, who knows if that's really what's going on? Well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, she's, she's been unreliable this whole time.
1: Also. If, if you're sleeping with somebody who you know is married, that's also kind of a dick move.
0: Yes, I, I would agree with that as well. I mean, how many men was she sleeping with in, in either the book or the movie during her 19 year old call girl phase that were married? And we're not calling her out oh, on of them. that. Well, uh, well no, again, we are- I don't believe that. 11. I just, <laughs> uh, okay, I feel like we're just going to spiral here. So do you think that the book had a happy or a sad ending or whatever? I like or- that it's ambiguous. I think a good ending it can be ambiguous. I didn't really feel it like it was ambiguous. I feel like she's off having adventures, doing her Holly stuff, and he's an author and doing his authory
1: stuff. Oh, yeah, his life is fine. He's he's got his own thing going on with her though. It isn't the only
0: one who's sad. Really, is Joe? Yeah, the cat's happy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the author at the end of the book is like, I really hope that Holly also someday found home. And I'm like, well, you want home. Maybe Holly doesn't want home. Well, that's what I was
1: wondering. Is her identity as a gypsy, and so
0: nowhere is her home, but then she's always at home. But I don't know, because I don't know what Holly really wanted. Because what we get from Holly is what she tells the narrator, and she's not reliable, and I don't buy half of what she spends. She is the manic Pixie Dreamer. She starts with one topic and then talks for an entire page and ends up somewhere else completely and has dropped in a couple kernels of interesting factoids or this thing how she's so scandalous or she's this or that or the other thing. And it's all performative. It's so performative. But we do get peaks beyond the mask, which is what makes her an interesting character. I know, but if you tell the up the little peaks that we get behind the mask, I don't know if we get enough to get a full picture to say whether or not she's happy or not. I happy. think there's a lot of dramatic irony here. We're
1: you can see what's going on with the character, even if she can't. And that's
0: why we're saying, you know
1: what? It's so obvious she's trying to be happy, and she really isn't.
0: Yeah. And I and thought it, they did a good job of that in the movie where she's like, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I don't, don't she's you know. Meaning, that I'm so happy. She's like, What is that? I don't know. And it's it, coming. it looked like it was from the Lorax. And, and I look I, at the books where I, it's these weird also, like three All of her yarn is like in this ball, which is way up here. And I was like, How does that cat? Okay with this. This cat would have been like all up in that knitting crazy pants. I'm just saying. <laughs> Again, with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope, I feel like the whole point is to be more than whatever you absolutely need to be. But it's bigger, fancier, flashier,
1: more dramatic. But I think that's more of a reflection on her character, of her trying to be this
0: thing that she isn't, and she's not quite pulling it off. Sure. Not even closer. I just don't think we have enough at the end of, say, whether she's happy or not happy in her gypsy life. Not gypsy, that's not okay to say anymore, in her nomad life. Oh, because it's a, a pejorative, Yeah, it's a okay. pejorative term now. All right. Okay. Or I guess it was so, always a pejorative term, but now we're aware that it's a pejorative term, so we're not going to say it. I apologize it. to all the Romania in the world. Okay. Anyways, that's the end for me. All, all right. So, you have anything else? Any final thoughts or takeaways? I feel like we've done final thoughts, like, yeah. three times now. <laughs> <laughs> Is it worth your time? Oh, yes. Both. Yes. I
1: would say yes. And, again, it's one of those where... I did like the book more than the movie, but they were both worth my time. I, I'm not I'm not gonna regret I, I saw this movie because it's such an icon. I now have that bit of pop culture now in my head.
0: Yes, and I would also say that if I was watching this movie just to watch a movie and be entertained, I would have found it way more enjoyable. Watching it with a critical eye, you can you can ruin almost anything if you're overly yeah. critical. And so since we're watching it to pull it apart and to look for themes and to look for memes and to look at how it changes from the book and blah 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 blah, it definitely changes the way that you're perceiving it. So as a As just a a fun, flighty thing from 1961, the you know beautiful costumes and yeah, so fun and enjoyable, great and somewhat subversive and somewhat subversive. Of course, the ending takes it away, but sure. I mean, it was it was progress. You know, progress isn't always big steps. Sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. So there you go. I just take that one line of his:
1: "I love you. You belong to me." Uh,
0: Gag. Alright, right, so thank you for listening. Yes, thank you for listening to this episode of Pages on Popcorn Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook.
1: Au revoir. I like the cat. That cat looks so sad in the rain.
0: Oh my god. That that movie cat was so goddamn pathetic. That movie cat was awesome. (laughs) It was. Actually, that movie cat had more personality than Paul. Kind of, yeah. Yeah.